Let's pray and we will dig into the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for the word of God, Father, that you've given to us. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So let the light shine this morning for each of us. As we look ahead to this afternoon and tomorrow, I pray that what we look at today would just illumine the truth of who you are, who we are, and what you are wanting to say to us. So come and do a powerful work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, like I said, we're starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and so uh, let's all turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to bring one to you that you can use this morning and look on with us. We are passionate here at Mercy Hill Church about studying the Scriptures, and I'm looking forward to taking us through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse over these next weeks and Month. So keep your hand raised high if you need a Bible. In, in the Bibles we're passing out, Matthew 5 is on page 809. 809 in the Bibles we're just passing out so you can find it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, back towards the right. I think uh, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the best-known sections of the Bible. I think if you mention the Sermon on the Mount, most everybody has some familiarity. In fact, I, I think if you... See if you agree with me about this. If you ask like a cross-section of people, um, you know, ordinary person on the street, if, if they know the Sermon on the Mount, I think many people would think not only do we know it, but, but that's what I'm living by. Would you agree with that? There's just a lot of people who think, well, that's, that's what I'm living by. But, but my hunch is that many of the people who glibly say that we're living by the Sermon on the Mount have never read the Sermon on the Mount, or they wouldn't be so glib to think that they're living by it. Let me illustrate what I mean. C.S. Lewis was a follower of Jesus, uh, taught Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. And here's what he said about the Sermon on the Mount. This is an interesting quote. He says, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking the Sermon on the Mount or enjoying the Sermon on the Mount, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? Okay, and that might sound kind of shocking, but... Maybe a little better picture is that the Sermon on the Mount is like a sledgehammer knocking our self-righteousness out of us. Or it's a sledgehammer knocking our pride out of us. Or a sledgehammer knocking our sin out of us. And that's what I mean when I say many who would say that they're living by the Sermon on the Mount kind of glibly, kind of shallowly saying that they've never really read the Sermon on the Mount. What we're going to do, Lord willing, over these next weeks and months is to read the Sermon on the Mount. So Sunday mornings, we're going to be walking through it verse by verse here, hopefully with some time to open it up for questions and dialogue and some back and forth so we can wrestle with this together. And then in our home groups, to be really working, to sink in our teeth into how are we going to live this? How have we lived this this last week? How have we not lived this this last week? And what can we do to live this more faithfully in the coming weeks? So that's where we're going. So let's dig in. I thought a helpful first question would be, why should we listen to the Sermon on the Mount? And Matthew gives us a clue right in the first two verses of Matthew 5. Why should we listen to the Sermon on the Mount? Look at what he says, first two verses. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, that phrase, opened his mouth, sounds kind of funny. I mean, how can you teach without opening your mouth? It's like it's kind of an obvious thing. But in that culture, if you would say somebody 
opens his mouth and speaks, you just clued people in that what he's saying is of the utmost importance. It's a sign of awareness, importance, dignity, get ready. It's kind of like if, uh, if you call your doctor to get the results of the biopsy, what you're hearing there is of the utmost importance. The doctor opens his mouth and, and tells you. Or if you're a, a defendant in a, in, a, in a trial and the jury foreman is going to read the verdict, okay, something of weighty importance. That's what signified if in this culture, okay, 2,000 years ago, if you wrote and said somebody was going to open his mouth and speak, you'd know that what he's going to say is of the utmost importance. So, so why is the Sermon on the Mount of the utmost importance? I think it's because of who's speaking it. I mean, we're diving into Matthew chapter 5 here, but in the first four chapters of Matthew, he has made it crystal clear who Jesus is. Who is speaking these words of the Sermon on the Mount? Go back to chapter 1, just verse 1, right at the very, very get-go of this, of this book. This is Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's a tax collector, became a follower of Jesus, eyewitness of Jesus. And look at what Matthew says in the very first verse. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In the Old Testament, God had promised that the day would come when he himself would come to earth as a man. It's prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And when he came to earth as a man, he would be born as a baby who was in the line of Abraham and who was in the line of David. And so Matthew wants to clue us in, chapter 1, verse 1, the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. God has come to earth in the person of Jesus. He was the one that was born in the line of Abraham. He was the one that was born in the line of David. Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully man and fully God. That's why we should listen. Another hint or clue Matthew gives us. Look at chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. These are familiar verses from the Christmas story. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quoting Isaiah now, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah, you can read this in your Old Testament, said that there would be a virgin giving birth to a baby who was God with us. So, the reason we should listen to the Sermon on the Mount is because these words, Matthew 5, 6, 7, are not just the words of a man. These are the words of God himself. When, when we listen to these words, we're going to hear, let me just get this in your mind, we're going to hear the words of the God who has always been. We're going to hear... God speaking, the God who created you and gave you life. We're going to hear the God speaking, who is the God that you were created to know and to love and to trust and to worship. That's whose words we're listening to here, the very words of God. So that's why we should listen to this Sermon on the Mount. Now what's it about? What's the Sermon on the Mount about? And look at the very first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 3. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that phrase, kingdom of heaven, or the phrase kingdom of God, or just the word kingdom for shorthand, it's used throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And what commentators have concluded, and it's pretty clear when you read it, 
is that what the Sermon on the Mount is all about is it's who gets to receive the kingdom of heaven. Who is it that gets to enter the kingdom of heaven? Who is it that gets to enjoy the kingdom of heaven? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Let me just kind of go back and give you a timeline so that you can see this this concept of the kingdom of heaven and how important this is. Go all the way back to when God created the heavens and the earth. And he created Adam and Eve. And he created you and he created me. And he's created us so that we could have the joy of knowing him, loving him, trusting him. God created Adam and Eve, all of us, and God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, ruled over the earth. And it was paradise for Adam and Eve. You've read the story, right? So what did Adam and Eve do? They did what we've all done. Turned their backs on God. They wanted to call the shots themselves. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be in in control. And the result was devastating. It was horrifying. Because of their turning their backs on God, and we've all done the same thing, God withdrew the kingdom of heaven from earth. He withdrew his rule. He withdrew his kingdom from the earth. And he allowed sin and evil to spread the earth. And he allowed Satan and his kingdom to come and rule the earth. So Satan's kingdom, under God's overall sovereignty, Satan's kingdom has ruled this earth. And because of our sin, because we've all turned our backs on God, we've all been like chained, like slaves, slaves of Satan's kingdom. And you have felt the consequences of that, right? You have felt the emptiness of that. You have felt the loneliness of that. You have felt the bitterness of that. You've seen the oppression. You've seen the racism. You've seen the results of the greed. You've seen the devastation, the relational conflicts, you know, the wars, the disease. I mean, you just, you've seen these are all ramifications of Satan's kingdom. Because of our sin, we've all become enslaved to Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom under God's overall sovereignty is ruling the earth. But the story doesn't end there. All through the Old Testament, like I said, God promised something amazing. That the day would come when he himself would come to the earth and be born as a man. Fully God, fully man. And by his his death paying for our sin, and by his resurrection from the dead, he would break the power of Satan's kingdom. And he would reestablish his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, on the earth once again. And so if you were an Old Testament believer, you're, you're pouring over the Old Testament scriptures, seeing these promises, God's going to come, be born as a baby. Isaiah chapter 7, born of a virgin, God with us. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to break Satan's power. He's going to reestablish his kingdom. You'd be, as an Old Testament believer, longing for God's kingdom. You'd be waiting for the kingdom of heaven. You'd be praying for the kingdom of heaven to come. This would be your focal point. And so think of what you would have felt like one day walking to the market, ordinary, everyday, you know, market day in Palestine, and you see a crowd of people gathered around a man. And you walk up because you're interested, you're curious, and you listen, and you hear him say, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe in the good news. Think of how that would have captured you. It's here. It's fulfilled. And so in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come. 
Okay, so human beings now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, human beings can be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, out of Satan's kingdom, can be freed from their slavery to Satan's kingdom, and can enter the kingdom of heaven. They can receive the kingdom of heaven. They can enjoy the kingdom of heaven. Here, now. We no longer need to live in Satan's kingdom. We can now be set free and enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the big question then is, who gets to experience that? Who gets to receive the kingdom of heaven? Enter the kingdom of heaven. Enjoy the kingdom of heaven. And most of the people that Jesus was talking to in Palestine would have thought of one group of people. Know who they were? Who is it that's going to get to enter the kingdom? It's the religious leaders. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. Because, I mean, they, they never associated with sinful people. I mean, they were out on the street corners praying out loud, showing their piety to everyone. They were awesome. They were so spiritual. I mean, they let everybody know when they were giving money. I'm giving money! Okay, here it goes. I mean, they, they never associated with sinful people. They said long prayers in public. I mean, they were wealthy morally. When it came to spirituality, they were full of spirituality, right? I mean, we've seen them, right? That's what everybody would have thought. They're the ones who get the kingdom of God, which is why Jesus' first sentence in the Sermon on the Mount would have left everyone speechless with shock. What does he say? Who gets to receive the kingdom of heaven? Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? The people that receive the kingdom are not those who look at their lives and say, I'm morally rich. When it comes to goodness and virtue, I am wealthy. It's not those people. The people who receive the kingdom are look at their lives and admit, spiritually, I am penniless. Morally, I am bankrupt. That's who gets the kingdom. So think about yourself. Okay, let's be really, really honest here. As you look at your life, do you see that you in yourself, apart from Christ and what he's done, just you in yourself, do you see that you are spiritually penniless? That you in yourself are morally bankrupt? That, that you in yourself, in who you are in yourself, have nothing to recommend you to God? Do you see that? And you might say, well, no, kind of wait a minute. Slow down a little bit. I mean, I work hard at my job. I, you know, I, I serve people. I, 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 I raise my kids well, or I'm working on raising my kids well. What do you mean morally penniless and spiritually bankrupt? Let me try to give you an illustration to help you feel why that's true. Even though you might work hard at your job, and you might serve other people, and you might raise your kids well. Here's why it's true. Remember the illustration I used a few weeks ago. Imagine a, a boat captain building this luxury yacht liner. Remember, you've all been thinking about this trip to Bahamas ever since I used that illustration, I know. But let's just go there again, just for a moment. Let's picture a, a captain, a boat captain, who builds this luxury yacht and fits it out with state-of-the-art equipment and luxury staterooms and fills the galley with the best French wine and lobster and tri-tip. This is just this amazing boat. And then he invites all of us to come and join him on a cruise to the Bahamas, all expenses paid. Remember the illustration? So we're all there, we're on this boat, we're heading to the Bahamas, and what do we do? That's a perfect illustration, by the way, of what God's done in creating us, okay? Making planet Earth this luxury liner, okay? What have we all done? We've mutinied against the sea captain. 
We wanted to be in charge. We wanted to call the shots. We wanted to be in control. And so we've all mutinied against the sea captain and thrown him overboard. That's what we've all done. Turned our backs on God, rebelled against him. We've all said, throw him overboard! Throw him overboard! We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. Throw him overboard. That's what we've all, all said. Now, so there you are, and, and the next day, you're, you're doing your job faithfully. You're steering the boat faithfully. You're, you're working hard at your job. You're responsible, right? You're, does that change anything? Morally? No. You are a mutineer. You are a mutineer. Or maybe the next day you're swabbing the decks, right? Serving the other, other people that are on the, on the luxury. You're serving other people. Does that change anything morally? No, you're a mutineer swabbing the decks, right? I mean, if you went to a courtroom when, you know, if the, if the Navy SEALs came and, and took over the boat, right? Okay, and you're in the courtroom and say, well, but I, I, I steered the ship, I did my job, and I swabbed the decks. You think the judge would say, oh, you can go. You know, it's fine. No, you are a mutineer, right? Or maybe on the trip you're raising your kids. Well, it doesn't change anything. You are a mutineer. So see, that, that's why we are all morally penniless and spiritually uh, bankrupt. It's because we've all mutinied against God and rebelled against God. But think about this then. So that's who we all are. I hope you're feeling that now. Think of the impact of Jesus' first statement. This is amazing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to be transferred from Satan's kingdom, to be freed from Satan's kingdom into the joys of the kingdom of heaven, the first step is you have to recognize that you are poor in spirits. Poor in spirits. Which means that when you look at yourself before God, you don't say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, or at least I'm better than George, or something like that. It's not what you say. You say, I am spiritually bankrupt. I am morally penniless. I have nothing good in me that deserves anything good from God. Truth be known, what I deserve from God for turning my back on him, rebelling against him, is I deserve punishment from God. That's the first step to receiving the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. That's not all that Jesus says. Look at what he says we should do about our spiritual bankruptcy, our spiritual poverty. What should we do about our spiritual poverty? Verse 4. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So it's not enough just to recognize our spiritual poverty. Jesus calls us to come to him and before him and towards him mourn our spiritual poverty. Feel sorry for our spiritual poverty. Confess our spiritual poverty. Repent before him concerning our spiritual poverty. It's mourning. It's all M-O-U-R-N, mourning. Now that might sound shocking. It's a little bit countercultural today. There's lots of people today who would say, you know, you should not feel guilty. Uh, don't feel guilty. Guilt is unhealthy. Um, you should feel good about yourself. You know, forget this guilt stuff. And people have created religions, you know, where you know this is a, a guilt-free religion. Well, I'll take that one, you know. But that's not what Jesus taught. Blessed are those who recognize they're poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sinfulness. They will be comforted. 
Okay, so what is mourning? What is it and what is it not? Let me tell you two things it's not. Okay? Mourning, as Jesus means it here, it's not feeling bad because you've dishonored your image of yourself. I mean, we all feel bad about doing bad things because it's like, why did I do that? I shouldn't, I should be above that. Fuller, what are you doing? What are you thinking? That's, I mean, you, you are bad, bad, bad. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. There's nothing of God in it. Okay, so it's not feeling bad because you've dishonored your own image of yourself. It's also not feeling bad because you've dishonored your image towards others. Anybody feel bad when, like, when your wife finds out or when your husband finds out or your boss finds out? Anybody feel bad because somebody else found out? I'm not the only one here, right? We all, I mean, I can feel badder about that than about before God. That's how I'm wired. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not just feeling bad because my, my wife found out or my boss found out or my friends now know, you know the truth about me. So mourning is not feeling bad because you've dishonored your image of yourself or your image towards others. Mourning means feeling bad at what you've done because you've dishonored God. You've dishonored God. It's about God and who he is. And if God is that way, how could I have done that? Let me give you a couple of illustrations. The Bible teaches very clearly that he, God, will completely satisfy our hearts with himself. I mean, just look at his love, look at his majesty, look at how we can know him through Jesus Christ, we can experience his very presence, we can seek him and find him through Jesus Christ. I mean, God says, I am the only one who will completely and fully satisfy you. That's who God is. And yet, listen, how can we go day after day after day and never seek him? Never open up the scriptures to to meet him, never kneel down by our bedside to to connect with him in prayer. How can we go day after day after day not seeking him? If if in his presence there is fullness of joy, that's wrong. Can you feel how wrong that is? That's who God is, and I just say, forget it. We should mourn if that's our, our response. Another example. Through Jesus, like we've been talking about this morning and and worshiping about, through Jesus, God completely forgives us for all of our sin. If we will trust him, repent, put our trust in him, we will be completely forgiven. So if you're trusting Jesus, you have had a hell's worth of punishment forgiven. It's massive. And yet, we don't forgive each other? We're bitter against each other? We, we hold things against each other? I mean, in light of what God has done, can you feel how wrong that is and can you mourn? One other example. God promises that he's going to ordain everything in our lives to bring us the greatest joy in him. And we see story after story. Remember the story of Joseph, Egypt, dungeon. Great good came out of that. God promises, I, I, I'm going to ordain everything in your future to bring you the greatest joy in me. Trust me. And yet we worry about the future? Or we grumble when they're in the midst of trials? Right? Do you feel how wrong that is? And so we should mourn. But that kind of mourning does not come naturally. The kind of mourning that comes naturally is feeling bad because I've dishonored my image of myself, or because I've dishonored my image towards other people. But it doesn't come naturally to mourn because I've dishonored God. We need to nurture that. We need to ask Him to give that to us. Ask him to work that in us, and he will. 
And then Jesus' promises will just resonate and encourage us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How will they be comforted? It's because, two, two things. One is, if you're trusting Jesus Christ, then all that sin's been forgiven. Okay? The neglecting of God has been forgiven. The unforgiveness towards others has been forgiven. The grumbling in the midst of trials has all been forgiven. If you're trusting Jesus Christ, if you come before him and you confess it and you mourn for it and you ask him to forgive you, then you're completely forgiven. And not just that, but he will pour his love into your heart. You will feel his forgiveness, his nearness, his acceptance. And when you feel his nearness and his forgiveness and his acceptance, you'll know the kingdom of heaven is here. I've entered the kingdom of heaven. I'm experiencing the kingdom of heaven. That's how you will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Jesus starts the the Sermon on the Mount, which is a massive list of all these things he calls us to do, which is huge. We're going to get there. But he starts off nailing us over the fact that you are poor in spirit, in yourself. You can do nothing. You've got to own up to that. That's where the whole sermon starts. Start there. Don't start with, well, I can do this. I can be good. I can work my way up towards God. You cannot. You have not. You will not. You're bankrupt spiritually. So come before God and say, I'm, I'm morally bankrupt. I'm virtuously penniless. I need the cross. I need your work in my heart. Forgive me. I'm mourning over my sin. And when you do that and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, yours will be the kingdom of heaven. And you will feel that by the comfort that he pours out upon you, the comfort of his forgiveness, the comfort of his love. I love where Jesus starts here. Powerful. Now, before we come to get some closing, what questions has this raised in your mind? Is I want to just get some feedback in case I've said anything that was like a little puzzling or maybe you had a whole different take on these verses. I'd like to hear that. We can, we can interact about that some. What questions are raised up in your mind about what this means or about how we live this? Should you be in a per- perpetual state of mourning as a Christian? Okay. How many say yes? Okay. How many say No. You're all right, okay? Um, Isn't it both? And they both are in sync together, and they both balance each other, and they both temper each other, right? Um, I just, God just convicted me Friday of something I did 30 years ago. And I brought it before the Lord, and and it was, a, it was a sweet time of just bringing it before the Lord again. And I know I'm forgiven for it. That's not the issue. But to say, because I, I, I think I'm learning more about who God is, and then I can feel more deeply how it's, it, it was wrong. And I just sensed fresh satisfaction and comfort coming. So I think it's both. Um, and some of you are going to be oriented in your heart towards the mourning side, and you'll need to work on nurturing the comforting side. And others of you are, are more oriented towards the, the everything's fine, I'm, I'm just great side, and you'll need to nurture the morning side. Right? Figure out what your temperament is and what you need to strengthen. Is that true? Like how many of you would just say you're more on the morning side, just temperamentally? How many, how many are on the, uh, the, the happy everything's fine, I don't want to think about the morning side? Okay, all right. And the rest of you figure it out. Okay, this is important. So. <laughs> you 
Yeah, I, I would. I mean, uh, and that's a big question. Let me just throw out a couple of thoughts because we we need to move towards the baptism. But that's such a good question. I bet you there's others here who can totally relate to what you're asking, Maria. First um, John one nine says, if we confess our sins, which is the mourning part of it, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so trust his promise that because you're coming before him and and, and confessing it, not only are you forgiven for it, but his cleansing power, his heart-changing power is going to work. And pray and ask him, say, help me to stop doing this. And then then just rise up trusting his power, trusting his grace, trusting his mercy to enable you. And if and when you stumble again, confess it again and just keep on getting up. I mean, because none of us are perfect this side of heaven. Right? We will we'll all every day need to confess sin. That's why the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our, our sins. In the Lord's Prayer, this is how followers of Jesus pray. And so we'll need to keep confessing. But, but we've got to keep trusting. He will cleanse me. I'm forgiven. I'm accepted. I'm a new creation in Christ. Here we go. His power is going to help me. I'm moving ahead. God, come and do this. And so you'll need to work on nurturing that side of it, I would guess. And we've all got issues we've got to work on, okay? So you got the morning part down pretty well, it sounds like but to strengthen the the trust in his promises that his power is at work is going to be making you more and more righteous as you continue to live. And you will see that. All right, let me close this up and then we're going to move into the baptism. So what does this mean for us? I mean, we could take this lots of different directions. Let me just kind of boil it down to, to one thought. Today and every day, recognize that you are poor in spirit, that in yourself, apart from Jesus, you are morally penniless and bankrupt in yourself and then recognize that because of Jesus okay you are born again his spirit is living within you his power is at work you will see righteousness increasing but all that is a gift to you a free gift he's forgiving you freely he will change you freely so mourn when you sin bring it before the Lord Confess it, trust his work, rise up just like Maria said, and move ahead trusting him to produce the fruit of obedience in you. And as you admit that you in yourself are morally bankrupt, and as you mourn your sin, you will be so profoundly comforted by the Lord. He will pour his love into your heart. He will pour his peace upon you. You will feel his presence and his nearness. And you will know, you will know because of of his satisfying you, you've received the kingdom, you've entered the kingdom, You're enjoying the kingdom, and you'll be able to do that now and forever.